Support for Digital Health Today comes from Optum. Optum tackles the biggest challenges in healthcare with innovative, data-driven solutions that help improve outcomes. Optum, how well gets done. Learn more at Optum.com. There are limits to human lifespan. They are engineered very, very specifically. All biology has a lifespan. As I like to say sometimes, you know, life is a 100% fatal sexually transmitted disease. We've got to have turnover. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights from leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 65. We've got another great episode in store for you, and I want to get right into it. So I'm just going to make a couple of quick remarks, and then we'll get started. First of all, a few days left to save 40% on a .health domain from our friends at .health. This offer is available to our audience and not something that we're promoting on our website or on social media. Take a look in your inbox for an email from me and use the link to save 40% on your own .health domain when you register using that link through GoDaddy. That offer is only good until May 31st, so don't delay this. 40% savings. While you're looking at your email, be sure to click that pretty purple button to confirm that we'll still be in touch by email after the privacy regulations come to effect this week on May 25th. I know you've been getting dozens of emails from people trying to confirm that, but if you could just click on that and get that done, we will be able to carry on our relationship by email after May 25th. And last thing before we jump into the episode, I just want to give a shout out to Labuska Dora for the five-star review on iTunes. I appreciate all the great comments and feedback, really. I've been getting pinged on Twitter and LinkedIn and even on email, and it really means a lot. The best place to put it, though, if you have something nice to say, is on iTunes. You can do that directly through your podcast app on your iPhone or on the iTunes website from your computer. Yes, I can't respond to you. It's always good to have Twitter, LinkedIn, or email to be able to have a conversation. But with the way the algorithms work at Apple, we really need to have good reviews on the iTunes website. So thanks to everyone who takes a minute just to leave that five-star review and a few comments on iTunes. And of course, if there's anything else that you want to share with me, please do get in touch with me on Twitter at HealthTechDan or drop me a line at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com. All right, our guest today is Dr. Jack Kreinler. He's Dr. Jack UK on Twitter. Jack's a physician, physiologist, and serial technology entrepreneur. He began programming computers at the age of 13 and couldn't decide between a career in tech or medicine, so he chose both. He's a leading expert in health optimization and has a background in emergency medicine with a special interest in high-altitude physiology. That explains the image of Mount Everest in the artwork for this podcast. He's a founder of the Center for Health and Human Performance in London, where he's the medical director of a multidisciplinary team of leading specialists managing complex cases. They work with a wide range of people from elite athletes to cancer patients and people in between who are seeking ways to extend the health span of their lifespan. He's also a founder of Centrion, which is a remote patient intelligence platform, and he's a co-founder of Weird and Wonderful, where he works with Daisy Robinson. Daisy was our guest in episode 23. I recommend you go back and check that out. You can find it at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 23. Jack travels frequently to the U.S. on various speaking engagements and to work with tech companies to increase the depth of focus on advanced analytics, connected data, and machine learning. Jack, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Dan. Jack, there's a lot that I want to cover in this episode, but there's one thing that I just have to ask you about right off the bat. That's because when I was doing the research for this episode, I came across a video of you in a cage match about five or six years ago. At first, I thought maybe it was just someone with the same name as you, but then I looked at the video and it actually is you in a cage match, apparently for science. So tell me, what were you doing? 
So uh, you, know, you mentioned Weird and Wonderful, one of the uh, one of the projects that we put together to try and change the way that stories in science are told, and and this was part of that kind of theme. The the whole point about the heavyweight cage fight that I was uh, <laughs> thrown into uh, for science was to try and help people, um, you know, do two things. First of all, understand an important message. It's quite complicated about how to kind of recover from injuries and how to beat pain. But secondly, also to prove that by doing things in a novel way, by doing education and, and uh, public health engagement communication stuff in a, uh, in a fun and approachable manner, that you could reach many more people and make much more impact uh, than you normally would with kind of preaching. Uh, so, yeah, the BBC approached us. We came to them with an idea and we just said, hey, you know, why don't we do a few uh, really cool things which show uh, about how people can manage chronic and acute pain. And that was it. I was thrown into a cage fight with Nick the Headhunter Chapman, a 107-kilo championship cage fighter, um, who was instructed to do deep soft tissue injury to both sides of my body, which we would treat one half of and not the other, and see the progression of healing on uh, MRI and how my muscles were uh, recovering through muscular torque testing. It was it was fantastic fun, very painful, but we proved the point, you know, kind of ridiculously bad science. <laughs> But um, we got messages across. And that's been a theme of mine, really, not just for the last five years, but I guess throughout my whole career is how do we change the way that science and medicine is um, uh, is communicated, you know, uh, in, in novel platforms. Hey, you know, Dan, you've got one of them yourself uh, here. Yes, but you never see me volunteering to go into a cage match just so I can have a better podcast with someone. So, so I really admire the links that you went to to go through that and put your body through that. And I wanted to make sure that everyone else could see that themselves. So I found the embed link. It was a little bit hard to find on the BBC website. So I grabbed that link and I made sure that it was already in the show notes for this episode. So people can go to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 65 and see that video for themselves. A really impressive experience that Jack put himself through. And I do encourage you to go check it out. Let's start with a little bit easier work environment. Your work over there at the Center for Health and Human Performance in London. You're treating everyone from elite athletes to cancer patients, which are populations that are really at the opposite and extreme ends of the health spectrum. What made you start that center? And tell me about the work that you're doing there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, so I mean, my medical background started off obviously as uh, medicine and physiology. So I was interested both in kind of the way we treat things when they go wrong, but also the way we can uh, optimize things when they're going right, which is the physiology end of it, really. And I, you know, went through ten years of practicing emergency medicine, and whilst obviously doing my kind of tech stuff in parallel. But what really frustrated me about uh, accident and emergency medicine was especially. On the, on the medical side rather than on the sort of accident and trauma side was how many of these people were coming in 10, 20, 30 years earlier than they, than they should be coming in a hospital with the product of complex chronic disease, of behavioral um, and lifestyle issues. Um, and, and, you know, it, it just really, really shocked me that we shouldn't be seeing so many people um, we shouldn't be needing to see so many people. There's plenty of stuff that we could prevent. And it kind of from the physiology side, it suddenly dawned upon me that it wasn't in fact medicine that was, you know, the most powerful tool here. It was the stuff that we were doing in physiology. It was the, it was the sort of the elements and the core components of physiological fitness of the fuel and the substrates which you, uh, which you eat. It's the 
the way you recover from sleep and, and rest. And it's your state of mind and your lifestyles which result from your state of mind that were the, the four key elements, really, that we use in elite sport. You know, if you don't have good sleep, uh, good headspace, um, good nutrition and good uh, fitness, uh, you can't get up Everest, you can't win gold medals. Um, but equally, you know, can't stay healthy. And so the 10 years after qualifying, uh, founding the Center for Health and Human Performance for me was a way of combining uh, brilliant scientists, sports specialists, and um, if you were like specialist physicians, doctors, in order to apply human performance science, not just to help people recover from injury or uh, win gold medals, but use exactly those same principles that helps people win the gold medals to help them get through the toughest physiological challenges, such as cancer. Well, those groups, elite athletes and cancer patients, are very different to each other. But I think that one thing that some of the people inside those groups might share is motivation. Both groups would be really motivated because the stakes are so high. You're either competing for a gold medal or you're fighting for your life, literally. What, have you, what are some of the things that you've learned from looking at these two groups and how can they relate to one another? Yeah, it's an interesting, you know, so <laughs> you see somebody at the top of Everest, what's that got to do with somebody, you know, being treated with chemo? But funnily enough, the, the sort of in extremis um, physiological states, you know, whether you're deprived of oxygen, not got enough calories going into you, you've got a whole bunch of kind of genetic and epigenetic changes happening uh, to your body, damage being done. Funnily enough, the in extremist states of your body, whether you're you know, pushing your body to the limit or um, the treatment for a, you know, like a, a major surgical operation or giving you cytotoxic therapy or um, the disease itself is also pushing the body into these kind of high pressured situations. And without physiological reserve, as we call it, or if you want to call it like, you know, in general fitness, people don't survive as long. And we've known this for a while. For some reason, people who are, inverted commas, fitter do better. Why is that? Why? And, and also another question is, why um, are people who are fitter, why are they less likely to get cancer, for instance? You know, it's, it's an amazing question that we, we've never really dug into. And it's only in the last few years we've really begun to understand at a molecular level why it is that people who are fitter don't get um, so many problems, including cancer. And um, it's a fascinating thing, actually. By optimizing the way your cells work for you to be able to run for a bus or cross the finishing line and you know, win the gold medal, um, you're actually also doing the same kind of things at a cellular level as a very, very important in preventing or uh, recovering from very complex, heavily uh, burdensome uh, problems on your body, such as cancer. And, you know, it's, it's kind of fascinating to me. For, for many years, we've been waiting for some of these answers to appear. And we're starting to understand that the metabolism, for instance, of cancer is, is the same kind of metabolism that you see when uh, cells are not properly aerobically metabolizing. They're not like, you know, they're not fit, in inverted commas. Um, so, you know, by driving fitness we're actually driving uh, the kind of metabolism away from how cancer likes to metabolize its, in its cells to, to a kind of you know, steady state of good, healthy metabolism that cancer hates just by making people fitter. Um, so we're, we're beginning to understand now that fitness is not just a cool thing um, that you know, is good for your heart and helps you run around into your 80s. It is actually incredibly important in the prevention and you know, survivorship of, of cancer itself. 
So let's talk about cancer because brain cancer is really in the headlines right now. The two largest audiences for this program are in the U.S. and the U.K. And both countries have prominent political figures that have been in the news recently due to their diagnosis with cancer. Of course, I'm talking about Senator John McCain in the U.S. and Baroness Tessa Jowell here in the U.K., both of whom have the same form of brain tumor, a glioblastoma multiforme. Baroness Jowell, for those who may not know, was a Minister of Parliament and MP under Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. She's largely credited for bringing the 2012 Olympics to London, and unfortunately, she lost her battle with cancer just recently. On May 12th, she passed away. Our hearts go out to her family. I was able just to speak with her daughter just before her death about some of the work that she's doing. We'll talk about that later in this program and hopefully on an upcoming program. But what can you tell us about the form of cancer that she had and that John McCain is still fighting and the current standard of treatment for this? So, yeah, I mean, you know, this is um, an example of a very complex disease, um, which is incredibly hard to fight. There are many, many barriers to fighting um, something like glioblastoma. And sadly, despite her being probably one of the most inspirational people I've ever kind of helped to work with, um, you know, as a as a kind of a patient advocate, you know, not exactly a prescribing physician for her, but certainly part of her medical team and her family's support. It's, you know, really a tremendous shame to lose such a brilliant person, um, and passionate uh, campaigner for social justice and social health justice as, as um, Tessa it was, you know, terribly sad. And, you know, the nature of this, this disease is, it's probably a lot more complex in some ways than uh, some of the cancers which we can help prevent by keeping fit and, and those kinds of things. It is the commonest form of brain cancer, glioblastoma multiforme. Gliomas uh, in children uh, are the one of the commonest causes of death in children, and it's you know it's a pretty unpredictable disease that's caused by certain genetic aberrations and, uh, and mutations uh, plus changes in the in the brain's microenvironment and the regulation of uh, how uh, glial cells in the brain kind of prune themselves and, and uh, keep themselves under control and how they migrate through the brain, which are all important processes when you're growing from one cell to three trillion cells from, a, from, a, from, a, from an embryo to an adult. But then when those mechanisms get turned back on again, the result is actually a a really shockingly aggressive disease that where even single cells can migrate through the brain at the pace of about a centimeter a month. The normal life expectancy, sadly, is somewhere between uh, 14, uh, 12.4 months and 14.8 uh, months, depending on you know what kind of cancer you've got. The long-term survivorship is very, very low. It's less than 10% despite 50 years of trying to um, address this particular disease. And you know, it really proves a major problem, of course, because you can't chop out large parts of your brain, otherwise you lose who you are. And so, you know, and then radiotherapy is also, is, is also not ter terribly effective. And the kind of chemotherapeutic agents, the cytotoxic agents that we have that have been proven by science really do not present um, a particularly great improvement in either quality or length of life. Uh, we're still using, you know, kind of an old school alkylating agent called temozolomide, which is, you know, derivative of mustard gas. And, um, it's it's a shame, you know. We really we really are not in a good position with glioblastoma, and it's it's there's, it, it also because perhaps of the number of people that have it. Although it's on the rise, it's still almost an orphan disease. There's not a terrible amount of research that goes into it, you know. And yet it presents one of the you know most shocking kind of 
loss of person and loss of life type scenarios that you know that you can get in human disease and in oncology a lot of the kind of supportive work that you can do with the kind of stuff we do at my institute is important really we need to look at a deep molecular basis of what is going on in cancer uh, and this particular type of cancer and uh, develop a much more kind of multimodal strategy and that's kind of what tessa was fighting for so this is what I wanted to come on to, because in this sector, we talk a lot about innovation and implementation and commercialization, a lot of Asians happening. But Baroness Zhao was an MP, and her career was around legislation. And since the time of her diagnosis, I know she put a lot of energy and focus on changing the system, the healthcare system, to allow better ways of working. And she delivered a really powerful speech in the House of Lords not that long ago. I'll make sure I include a link to that video in the show notes as well. You've been working alongside... Baroness Zhao, her daughter, Jess Mills, to bring about that change. How did that come to be and what sort of impact is that work having on really changing the standard of care for patients with glioblastomas? Well, I'll, I'll give you a bit of background. How, kind of how it all began uh, was that a friend of mine in the States, after just having sold his gene sequencing company to a big biopharma company for $350 million odd, dollars uh, was on his cycling machine at home and uh, he collapsed and it turns out that he had a glioblastoma and so obviously he phoned me up and said look you know this is the situation you know shall we start to explore some of these other routes uh, obviously completely in concert with all of his oncologists etc but you know he was not the kind of guy that will go for a 12.4 month life expectancy he he would do anything to to really understand his disease and get the very very best possible therapy and so we embarked on um, a kind of a mission of deeply understanding what was going on in his cells. We sequenced his tumor. We did whole exome, whole genome sequencing, metabolomic studies, RNA studies. We grew his cells in, in test tubes. We evolved them. Uh, we saw how, you know, we studied how, I mean, you know, to, to, to like an N of one real scientific experiment, we uh, sponsored a trial at Stanford to develop a personalized DNA assay for him and um, a dozen other people. And um, it, you know, it turned out to be a, a very interesting biomarker that we could use to see whether or not whatever combination of things he was on, standard of care or otherwise, uh, was, was working or not. And uh, you know, the good news is, is that 18 months or so later, he's, he's, in, he's in good shape. So the, the interesting result you know, with, with this is that taking a kind of very engineering approach to this problem rather than waiting for science to catch up has led us to sort of, you know, think about really understanding the tumor or the problem a lot more deeply, uh, strategizing around the different pathways that have gone wrong, both the genetically based pathways, but also, you know, how the metabolism's gone wrong, how the immune system is failing and so on. And developing combination therapies that adapt to the treatment uh, and the progression of the disease that you have to uh, monitor using the kind of next generation now of uh, blood-based and possibly urine-based biomarkers. There's, there's, you know, there's no point doing something which is <laughs> kind of never been done before and very personalized to somebody if you can't track in real time what's going wrong with it. So a mutual friend of this, of this lucky individual who really had all the resources around him technically as well as medically to, to do this uh, exceptional kind of adaptive N of one trial on himself. A mutual friend introduced me to Tessa having heard that she'd been diagnosed with, with this condition. And uh, 
you know, she, she was a neighbor. I didn't know who she was, didn't realize that she was responsible for the thing I loved the most in the last 20 years that happened in the UK, the Olympics. I mean, it was, it, I, I learned more and more about this brilliant woman who is our neighbor. And I'm just, you know, purely out of compassion, started to ask her about what is the kind of care that she wanted? What was the kind of, um, you know, efforts that she wanted to uh, kind of make? And, and, and also incredibly importantly, around her, her family, what, what did they want? And, and, and how much time and effort were they prepared to put into, you know, exploring more individualized options uh, for, for Tessa. And, and obviously, this is a very interesting scenario, because on one side, you've got a Silicon Valley technology serial successful entrepreneur who's got access to everything versus a person that's incredibly passionate about social justice and social socialized you know healthcare that's available to all and uh, you know what what i thought was absolutely extraordinary was how all the things that she had access to she had one overarching mission uh, towards and that was how do we get these options or at least the chance of exploring more than you know a 50 year old standard of care um, out to um, everybody now you know we don't yet know whether trying a lot of different things is going to end up having profoundly different quality of life or um, length of life difference but she was absolutely passionate that the right to try and the responsibility to learn from what we try is something that should be a national priority. It, it, it's not the same science that we're used to, that we're really good at in the UK, but it is a computationally driven data science oriented way of um, getting to answers to try and solve complex diseases like GBM that no one at scale has ever tried before. I'll get back to the conversation in just a moment, but first I want to tell you about one of our sponsors. Support for Digital Health Today comes from Optum. If you're a sifter of health data, a revealer of insights, or a believer of better days ahead, you'll be interested in the data-driven solutions Optum provides. Through insight and innovations, Optum is working hard to tackle the biggest challenges in healthcare, from pharmacy care services and healthcare operations to population health management and healthcare delivery. Optum uses data and analytics to power modern healthcare and help improve outcomes for all of us. Optum, how well gets done. Learn more at optum.com. Now let's jump back to the conversation. Well, it certainly seems that her work is having an impact. I saw recently that Prime Minister Theresa May has doubled the funding into the research fund, so it's going up to 40 million pounds. That's about $54 million. And it's also being renamed as the Dame Tessa Jowell Brain Cancer Research Mission. So we're seeing some good things come out of this tragic and premature loss of her life. And we certainly hope that it will lead to better outcomes for individuals and for families going forward like Baroness Jow would have liked to have seen. So that's the sort of work at one end of the spectrum that you're working at, helping the chronically ill battle disease. And I know another key passion of yours is around increasing and improving health span. So not lifespan, health span. So can you tell the listeners what that term means and about some of the science that's developing in this area? Sure. The whole point about human performance science is to make sure that you have mobility, capacity, cognition, independence. You, you, you've got to remove dependency on people, the 
you know, this kind of like the, the, the crippling burden of complex chronic disease and the diseases of aging are things that, you know, human performance science and our institute is, is really focused on. Uh, cancer is one of those diseases of aging and you can get it young, but it's essentially a, you know, like in that same bucket. And, uh, and for us, you know, whatever we do, whatever strategies, uh, um, uh, our group or, or anyone in healthcare is uh, are working on. We're, we're very, very passionate about reducing the gap between health span and lifespan, reducing the gap, um, the, the number of years that you are dependent on people, uh, you can't enjoy life, you can't work, you can't thrive, you can't flourish. Uh, and this is not just for vanity, you know, about living for 200 just because you want to, you know, see more sunsets and watch more movies. This is necessity. You know, we're, we we have managed by all these miracles of science to to end up, you know, living longer and longer, but we still can't work, um, you know, past our mid-60s. And and this is this is something which we really have to change. We really, you know, for us, uh, health span is entirely about squaring that curve of quality of life, so that you know you you carry on at full capacity till the very last moments of your of your of your time here on this uh, wonderful planet, and then poof, you disappear. <laughs> that's that's the idea. So, what sorts of things are you doing then? What sorts of practical steps are you taking with clients to achieve that reduction in the gap between health span and lifespan? Well, I mean, it, it can begin, you know, decades before uh, you you end up, you know, starting to see the clinical signs of the, you know, the complex diseases of, of aging and so on. Um, you know, and that that is basically if we treat you like an athlete. If we get you fit, we get your food right, we reduce your toxins, your, um, you know, the bad stuff that you're doing to yourself. Uh, your head's in the right place, and uh, uh, and and you know, you're repairing and so on through sleeping correctly. Those are the, you know, the four key things it will delay the time at which most people uh, will end up getting the manifestation of, of, of aging and the diseases of aging. And so, so that's one thing. And then when you do get them, you, you kind of are far, far more tolerant because you, you kind of have a, a deeply ingrained physiological reserve. Um, you know, for instance, you're, you know, for many, many, many years, your cells have been operating, uh, you know, with good insulin sensitivity. Uh, you haven't been spiking your, your sugars uh, in the night or in the day. Uh, you know, you haven't been doing that end organ damage. So, you know, when, when diabetes starts to creep up on you, which eventually it will, if you're going to live to 200 or 300 years old, um, you know, it, you, you've, you've enjoyed a very, very healthy base situation. So part of it is about starting decades in advance um, and, you know, focusing around kind of sport activity um, and, and kind of uh, physiological uh, fitness. Um, you, you can already do that shrinking of the gap between health span and lifespan. People tend to get to reach that point of incapacity and frailty far later. Uh, but obviously, you know, eventually our cells hit a limit, um, whether that limit is, you know, dictated by your genetics or the length of your telomeres or, um, you know, damage that you've received, irrespective of how, um, you know, well you've looked after yourself. Um, but, you know, there, will, there are limits to human lifespan. They are engineered very, very specifically. All biology has a lifespan um, because guess what? you know, evolution um, of things where you get rid of the old things and try new combinations of genes is, is how nature has worked very, very well for, for billions of years. And um, as I kind of like to say sometimes, you know, life is a 100% fatal sexually transmitted disease. We've got to have turnover. Um, and if we're going to break the age barrier, then you're going to have to get into uh, 
you know, cellular re-engineering and repair. Uh, and I think there's a lot of stuff that we can do that our body fails to produce as we get older and older um, that, you know, that, that are well-tested, uh, understood, have low toxicity, uh, but really, frankly, are ignored outside of the area of sort of human performance science. Um, medicine seems to sort of, you know, take less of, a, less of an interest in it, but I think it's key. Jack, I really appreciate you coming on the program and sharing a lot of great information here. I know you're involved in a lot of different projects, so how can listeners follow your work and get in touch with you? Well, uh, you know, very often I seem to be asked to appear on, you know, on, on stage or, or on screen. We've got, uh, we've got a panorama special on the work of Tessa Jowell and, and her daughter Jess and the whole uh, UK brain cancer mission and how that extends to uh, the international community gathering around this mission. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on that for when that's available. We'll make sure we include that in the show notes. How about social media? I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and, you know, just see the stuff that I'm passionate about. And um, the, the things that I'm passionate about are the people that are doing incredible things. And, you know, you'll see a lot of links there uh, to the people that I think are really shaping the future of medicine, healthcare, and making it not only better, but also democratizing it and available to all. So on the website, we'll have the links to find you on LinkedIn and on Twitter. We'll also have the video of you and Nick, the headhunter Chapman. We'll have the video of Tessa Jowell uh, presenting at the House of Lords uh, back in January. We'll also include a video or two that we can find of uh, you doing various talks at various places. As a matter of fact, I know you often attend Exponential Medicine, and people can probably find you out there in uh, Daniel Crafts meeting in November in San Diego this year. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Excellent. Well, Jack, listen, I've got six questions I want to run through with you quickly. Can you tell me what is a saying, quote, or phrase that motivates you? A good phrase that I really love is, life is a game, play it honorably. Uh, it's uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton, uh, the famous Antarctic explorer, said that. I believe that you know, a lot of what we need to do in medicine is um, you know, navigating a bunch of options which you know, present to us, but there are barriers, there are big waves, political and otherwise, that are in front of us. Uh, we've literally got to use game theory <laughs> to navigate those things. It's not just about science and medicine, it's also about politics. And to do that sincerely uh, and, uh, and honorably is, is uh, the best way of doing that. And that is something that Tessa Jowell really, you know, um, illuminated to me. And it's, uh, it's become a big focus of the way I approach uh, making change in healthcare. What advice do you have for others working to innovate in healthcare? Don't underestimate uh, the power of exponentially advancing technologies, I think. Um, that's uh, probably the biggest thing I can say. Uh, you know, learn about them, embrace them, whether it's from devices, AI, connectivity, the, this kind of so-called concept of big data and, uh, and, and the truths that lie within that, uh, which really are kind of biases and practice masks a lot of the time, uh, is, is, is really the way that we're going to progress uh, medicine more than anything else. What's a book that you recommend to our listeners? Oh, that's a really good one. Wow, this is like Desert Island Discs almost. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I, know it's, I know it's been read quite a lot uh, by a lot of people and it's been superseded by other things, but, but I, I actually think that uh, Sapiens is a good book by Yuval Noah Harari. Equally on that same theme, we've got uh, Evolving Ourselves by Juan Enriquez and uh, yeah, Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark, all kind of on, on a similar theme. I think it talks about how computation is going to be a big feature of uh, the next generation of, uh, of human beings. Great. I'll include links to all those three books in the show notes to this episode. What's a piece of tech that you recommend? Um, let's say the Abbott Freestyle Libra um, Continuous Blood Glucose Monitoring Patch. Stick it on your skin. Learn about how food affects your sugars. 
If I gave you a check for $5 million for you to invest in health technology today, how would you invest it? Uh, adaptive clinical trials to try and crack a really hard problem uh, at a national scale in a currently untreatable cancer. And the last thing is we make a donation to a charity in appreciation of your time here on the show. What charity have you selected? And can you tell me a little bit about what they do? Act for Cancer, founded by Baroness Tessa Jowell and her daughter Tess Mills. And it's about that very same thing. Let's try and personalize our medical approaches to complex systems. Uh, let's try and be advocates for the families uh, and the loved ones and caregivers around the patient. And uh, let's try and learn from the way that we should be doing things and certainly will be practicing in future. Excellent. Well, I know that's a very new organization. The website isn't quite up yet. So once that website is up, we will make sure we include a link to that in the show notes. And we will also make a donation in your name and encourage others to do the same. Is there anything else you'd like to add before I let you go? Well, I would, I would just say thank you very much for taking the time to listen. We're in an extremely exciting stage. I really appreciate, obviously, your passion uh, for trying to get these important messages out there. And, um, you know, I would say be excited because we are, we are really entering a new kind of era in the way that we're going to study complex disease. So keep your eyes and ears fully open and peeled for what's about to happen. Excellent, Jack. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thank you. There you have it. That was Dr. Jack Kreinler of the Center for Health and Human Performance in London. Find links to connect with Jack and check out some of his videos and work by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 65. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please help spread the word. I'd love for you to share it out on social media, email, and word of mouth. Reviews on iTunes are always appreciated. You can do that directly from your phone or your laptop. Learn how by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash review. You can always get in touch with me directly and send me your feedback the old-fashioned way on email at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com or hit me up on Twitter at healthtechdan. Be sure to check out our partner, Optum. Optum tackles the biggest challenges in healthcare with innovative, data-driven solutions that help improve outcomes. Optum, it's how well gets done. Learn more at optum.com. More great guests are coming up, so be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app and follow the show on Twitter at dhealthtoday. That's all for me for now. Speak with you soon on episode 66. And until next time, keep on innovating.